Welcome to Two Quants and a Financial Planner, where we bridge the worlds of investing and financial planning to help investors achieve their long-term goals. Join Matt Ziegler, Jack Forehand, and me, Justin Carbonell, as we cover a wide range of investing and planning topics that impact all of us and discuss how we can apply them in the real world to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. So Matt, I'm really excited today because we get to talk about something that I know pretty much zero about, uh, which is, you know, so- sometimes we're covering topics that I, that I know a lot about, but this time I'm going to learn a lot along with everybody else. So I'm, I'm excited today. We're going to talk about private assets. Um, and, and we had Larry Swedro on excess returns recently for our show us your portfolio. And we talked a lot about, he, he invests a very large portion of his portfolio. I think it's north of 50% in these private assets and he uses things like interval funds to do it. So we're going to work through all of that today. We're going to work through the different private assets you can invest in. We're going to work through how it works behind the scenes. Uh, we're we're going to try to get into all the details. So I think this is going to be a really interesting one. And we're lucky to have Lee Budoris. Um, from Sunpoint uh, with us today. He's, he's going to help us because we are certainly not the experts uh, um, in this topic. So Lee, thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Jack. So where, where do you think the best place to start is, Matt? Maybe just, just at a high level, like why someone would even do this? Um, you know, we've got a lot of things in the public markets we can invest in. We have a lot of choices. Why would someone want to go beyond that? You know, why would someone want to invest in private assets? So we run into this question professionally all the time. And that is people, people come to the conclusion that they, so they get over the initial phase of like what you can buy in a brokerage account, stocks, bonds, funds, ETFs, individual QCIPs, real things. And at some point they realize active management is really hard. They go through their vanguardians of the galaxy phase where they just want to index and whatever else. And then they arrive at this point where they're like, wait, there's other stuff too. And they hear somebody like Larry Swedro on, on your, on your podcast talking about this. And they're like, wait, there are other ways to be active, but they require me to go away from public markets in some way. And that sounds really cool. That sounds really interesting, but there are so many details here. And at some point, Lee and I, we spend so much time just educating people about these things and looking at the opportunities. And I am not the expert. I learned pretty much everything I know from Lee. That's why we need to have him here. So Lee, no, no pressure, right? No pressure, no pressure. <laughs> Jack, you're the vanguardian of the galaxy and I'll be, I don't know, pick, pick a Marvel bad guy. I'll be him. Um, Lee, let's start here. Just maybe define private assets and give us just an overview on like, how big is this space? How big is this fun space? Why is it growing way, way too fast right now? What's going on with privates? Yeah. So at its most basic level, a private asset is anything that doesn't trade on Jack's Vanguardian platform. So anything that not trade or able to be bought and sold every day, bought and sold. Some you can buy every day. We'll get to that. But you can't sell them every day. Why do it? Well, we'll talk through three the three main categories, but most of what we'll talk through today applies to all three. Private equity is just a company that doesn't trade on a stock market. So your so Sunpoint is a private business. We're, we're not owned by private equity. We're owned by the leaders of Sunpoint. That's an example of just any, any, most businesses in America are not 
publicly traded. It's a huge opportunity set. And over the long term, private equity has outperformed public equity. All right. Everybody understands outperformance. And it, the long-term expectations about three percentage points. It comes up and down over time, moves a lot. It's supposed to be a long-term investment. Well, over the long term, that's that's the goal is to beat public markets. Within real estate, well, if you own a house, you own private real estate. Everybody knows the S&P 500 for large cap. U.S. stocks. There are publicly traded REITs that are stocks and trade like stocks. The Vanguard index has about 170 of them. So you're dealing with a very limited opportunity set. And those indexes are driven largely by the largest two or three. You want to talk about concentration in the S&P 500, the REIT market's got that covered. And then some. And then the third one is private credit, which is in its highest level, investing with generally smaller companies that banks used to cover, but post-financial crisis either can't or don't want to anymore. So that's a growing opportunity set as well. Float, They're all, or almost all floating rate, which has been really great the last two years, and doesn't have the daily volatility that we, especially in the last year, year and a half, that we've seen from public fixing. So there's there's lots of reasons to own these. We can kind of talk about everything that joins them all together. As, as like an I, outsider, it seems to me like these things have grown a lot. Like, I, I don't know a lot about it, but I see tons of stuff in the news. Like, it seems like these all these private different things you referenced are a lot bigger than they used to be. I mean, is that is that the truth behind the scenes? Yes, in a in a in a word. Until the last several years, private investments were for institutional investors and large families. You had to be qualified purchaser, so five million dollars in assets for individuals. You had to meet very high minimums. You had to pay capital calls so you can just make one investment like we're used to and be done with it. You have to invest over time, which is a pain. You get your money back whenever the manager decides, earns enough to give it back to you or sell something. So that takes forever. That's a pain. You don't get 1099 tax treatment. They come as K-1s. So it's just operationally very intensive to do this. Over the last, especially five years, that's changed because investment managers have realized, all right, we've pretty much got the institutional market tapped out. It started growing leaps and bounds, especially after David Swenson's books for the Yale Endowment kind of made the endowment model, which is alternative heavy, very popular. Most institutions are now doing something like this. So what's next? And that's people like, like us, managing broad wealth clients, but these clients can't invest $5 million in something. I know of funds that have a $10 million minimum. That That's not something we can handle. But when you start getting to newer vehicles that 
the the vehicle structures have been around forever. No one just ever used them. And now you're talking minimums from zero to twenty five thousand. Now you're broadening the opportunity set significantly and including so many more investors. I think it's so important just to say, to put like the highlighter on this point you made. So private, just to demystify the word private, just means something that doesn't trade as easily as public. Right. Simple, simple, simple. Private does not trade as easily as public. So we have this whole other thing. And I love the examples you gave because it's like private equity just means a business that's not listed on the stock market. Jack, I'm sure Validia, you guys are like the Domino's pizza of uh, private asset managers, right? <laughs> Research. I, I would say so. Yeah. It's comparable returns, right? Comparable returns, comparable, uh, comparable pizza crusts. <laughs> um, so private equity, just think non-private, non-publicly trading company, private real estate, you own a house. Congratulations. You're a private real estate investor. Private credit is, you know, you give uh, Joey a loan for lunch money and uh, congratulations, you're in the private credit business. So we demystify this word private to just mean non-public. But then what's happened, and we love to use this word, the democratization of investing, like, oh, it's such a righteous divide thing. It's no, 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 no. We tapped out the institutional and the giant asset markets. So now we're going to, the productization of these vehicles is why it's coming downstream. However, within that, there are certain things that are really interesting to access. And there are some ways to do it that aren't disastrous. To be clear, a lot of bad ways to do this. But there are some really good ways to do this too. And that's why we want to focus on kind of the vehicle types and some of the language as people start to ask these questions. Because they can ask these questions now for the first time ever. Yeah. Picking up on like the vehicle type, you know, when I, when I think about like private equity, I've always thought about like a fund that has a start date, people commit money to it, you know, they draw down the money as they get investments and it has like an end date and it's over. But that's in terms of the, the things that are coming down to financial advisors and to more average people, I don't think that's the way it works. So can you sort of talk about how, the, how these things actually work? You're absolutely right, Jack. So the, the traditional private equity fund that institutions have been investing in for decades you're right, has a period of years that they can make investments, another period of years to manage and grow those investments, and then a date by which they're supposed to have the, everything sold. It usually doesn't work like that because they can extend the fund because, hey, we can't sell something. I've seen a lot of that in the last few years. There, But eventually the fund does end. With these newer funds that people like ourselves can access for our clients, I use the word evergreen because people know what that means. They, they don't have to end. If now someday, if, if it's not working and they want to sell everything and shut the fund down, of course they can do that, but they don't have to. They have to offer some liquidity on a periodic basis. And we can talk through that, but they can, they can run forever. They, they buy a private company, they grow it, they sell it five years later, they have cash, go buy something else, wash, rinse, repeat. So how does it, let, let's talk about like interval funds are one of the things you, you hear a lot about now. Yeah. Let's just talk a little bit about how the liquidity of these things works. Um, so obviously if, if I invest in any of these vehicles, I can't just go tomorrow and say, you know what? I decided I didn't want to invest. Like, give me all my money back. 
Like yep. I'm used to being able to do that with ETFs, with stocks. I can't do that here. So can you explain a little bit about how that works? Yep. So an interval fund is a 40-act structure. So it has a ticker. Five letters, ends, and X. We know, we know what that means. So an interval fund, you can buy most, the vast majority of them every day through your custodian. Put in a ticker, blank, 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 X, buy $10,000. If they'll take it, they usually will. All right. An interval fund must offer at least 5% of its value every quarter for redemptions. Must. That's a key word because we'll differentiate that as we go along. They can choose to offer more. They don't have to. So, for example, let's say Jack's interval fund, you know, they're, they have to set a schedule. All right. On the 15th of the third month of every quarter, we're going to offer 5% of the fund. And if you want out, put in your sell order through your custodian. You get the fund gets three and a half percent of the fund in redemptions in a given quarter. Everybody gets paid out 100%, just like you're selling anything else that we're used to. If they get more than 5% in redemptions, now they have a decision to make. They can provide full liquidity. So they get 6%, they pay out, they can choose to pay out 6%. Or you can get a pro rata. So you would get, if they only say, we've only got 5%, every investor who submits a redemption for $10,000 would get five-sixths of that. And then they can put in another redemption next quarter. And it, it certainly, it hasn't happened too much uh, in, in recent years. We saw quite a few of them in 2020 go over 5%. Sometimes a manager will launch a new fund and some investors want to put some of their money from the first fund to the second fund. So you see spikes in redemptions that way. But the markets, even including 2022, which was pretty rough, we didn't see too many interval funds run over 5% in any given quarter, but it's still a risk. So investors have to know you are not guaranteed the ability to redeem all of your investment every quarter. You'll get something back, but you're not guaranteed to get everything. I think this differentiation too, and again, to just take it back to this private versus public, private just means it's harder to sell. So right. the expectation that you can sell goes out the window when you throw private on it. Do you want to just yep. take us through, let's just stay on interval fund for a second, because I think this is interesting. Yep. Interval funds in private credit, yes, but why don't we see the proliferation, say, of interval funds in real estate or private equity? So there are interval funds in real estate. There's not as many. Most most of the evergreen real estate funds are in a different structure, and we'll get to that. There are all there's I know of a handful, maybe a couple handfuls of private real estate interval funds. They're not as common, in my opinion, for one key reason. It's harder to sell a building than it is to sell a private loan. A private credit manager can sell a loan. 
the private credit market's much bigger. It's going to be easier today than it ever was. Are they going to like the price they get? That's a different question. If you're trying to sell, let's say you bought an office building seven years ago and the, you don't want to take a price that's 30% less than what you bought it for, well, you don't, you'd rather hold it if you can. You mean they don't just go on Facebook Marketplace and list these things? That's that, not the uh, no, solution? No, that's not how oh, okay. that works. <laughs> so that, so I, that's why I highlighted the word must. Must offer 5% a quarter means one of two things. You have to hold a lot of cash or you risk running into liquidity issues. And if you hold a lot of cash, that dampens your returns and that's a drag, right? Right. So ca cash drag with these evergreen funds is something I pay a lot of attention to because you need, you need liquidity to run these things. It's just uh, a pain sometimes. And if you're going to invest in a private asset, you're expecting higher returns. Well, you don't want to waste it all on cash. I mean, at least cash earns something today. You know, if two years ago it earned 0.01%. In private equity, it's even harder. So that's why you don't see a lot of interval funds. There's a there's a couple that uh, that have opted for the interval fund structure, and they do hold a lot of cash. That's their way around it. Yeah, and I can I can see as you're saying that how it wouldn't work with private equity because if you think about it, you know, you go through a 2008 type period. I have to offer five percent every quarter. You know, it could be a long period of time before I can sell these companies at any kind of reasonable price. You know, I would have to either have a lot of cash, or I'd have to. I, I don't know exactly what I would do if I didn't have a lot of cash, but I could get myself into some trouble there where I'm stuck with these. You know, I've got to sell these things at a fire sale price because basically, I, every quarter I continue to get the five percent. Yeah, think about it. So. The, the few interval funds that do exist in private equity tend to hold 10 to 15% cash. So that's two to three quarters worth. But let's say 2008 happens, Jack. Your private portfolio gets marked down eventually by a decent amount. That 10 to 15% in cash is now, <laughs> see, it's a different percentage of your portfolio. It's now even more. So now what's the point of off, of owning of paying higher fees for something that's in trouble and a quarter cash. So I want to, we're definitely coming back to the asset marking policies because that's a huge detail right. of all these things. Can you also do, walk us through private credit, private real estate, private equity in terms of like evergreen fund structures just at a high level too? Yeah, they're all, they're all different. I'll try and focus on what's, what's similar to them. Loans are the easiest. So private credit loans. They tend to be three to five years in duration, sometimes a lot shorter than that, rarely longer. And a loan is you're getting paid interest every quarter. The loan's not in trouble. Most of them aren't. You know what par is. All right, that's pretty easy. If you have to write loans down because of defaults, then the manager needs to have a, a process to do that because they are smaller companies and therefore riskier or they're riskier in general. And I mean, if, if a company was big enough to go to the bond market, they just go to the bond market. Um, they can't do that for some reason. Real estate, the, the, the evergreen real estate funds at least have, have an appraisal once a year and they try to not do it at the same time so that you get a rolling view of what the portfolio is actually worth by definition is going to have a lag to it 
especially, you know, especially lately with not much transaction activity going on in private real estate. Some are a little bit more proactive. I tend to like those a little bit more where you're, you're at least either doing a summary appraisal once a quarter, or if there's a material change to a property, I expect a, a, a new appraisal. So it, it's, it's slow to move. That's why you don't see big returns plus or minus out of evergreen real estate funds, because you're not marking the whole portfolio every month. And the private equity is the, the biggest wild card of them all because depends what kind of private equity you're dealing with. And if you're investing alongside, you know, uh, if you're in a fund, like a secondary fund, you're at the whim of the manager that's running that fund and their valuation policy. You're just marking whatever somebody else thinks it's worth. If you're investing in direct companies, then you better have your own valuation policy and we can, we can review that. So that's even slower to move sometimes because it's, it's all over the place in terms of how they work. This is something you'll see like as a criticism of these private assets all the time on Twitter, which is this idea, well, you know, in 2020, basically, you know, we're, our, our public equity portfolio is a pure bloodbath. You know, we're down 35% in a month or something like that. And they show like the private equity guy just sitting there, like relaxing with a drink, like, you know, nothing's changing the value of my portfolio. It's exactly the same. You know, by the time they get to mark the thing, the whole thing's over. Um, you know, you see that a lot. And I wonder, it's, I guess it's a two-sided thing to some degree, um, because all of us have this tendency and we're seeing our stuff blowing up in front of us to make poor decisions, you know? So to some degree, it's probably good that I'm not seeing it marked down, but also like a lot of the times you're probably not seeing the true value of these assets, or at least you're not seeing it for a, a delayed period of time. Right. We, we saw this, especially in real estate in, in 2022, REITs were down, the publicly traded REITs were down 25 to 30% on average. Public REITs were positive. They both own real estate. Why would you want to buy something that's way up when you can buy something that's way down when they both own the same asset class? Well, in 2023, it reversed. REITs were positive, thanks to the last two months of the year, and private REITs were flat to negative. They are meant to be long-term investments you hold for a very long period of time, if not forever. So you shouldn't worry as much about how, you know, the month-to-month -month or day-to-day -day performance, but it's our nature to do that. And that's what concerns me the most about evergreen private equity that I'm still wrapping my head around. We've, we've seen private credit go through 2020 and do just fine. In real estate, we had Blackstone REIT, which is the largest private REIT, so not an interval fund, we'll get to that, had more redemptions than its policy for more than a year and made it through it just fine. They followed what they, exactly they were supposed to do. I give them lots of credit for that. Private equity in an evergreen structure is still very new. There's only a couple funds that have been around for five years. They haven't seen 2008. 
They haven't seen the tech bubble. They haven't seen anything that is going to make investors want to sell, even when they shouldn't. Most most people, as Warren Buffett would say, are the others that are. <laughs> so these, regardless of what kind of structure you're dealing with, evergreen private funds are going to be the most liquid when you least desire it because everything's doing well. And they're going to be the least liquid when your knee-jerk reaction is to sell. And that's not going to change. Highlight that point with, you know, six different colors of highlighter because that's, that's the biggest piece. When you're dealing with higher net worth individuals or people with lots of assets and they can buy time horizon because they don't need liquidity, then they can weather these storms, theoretically right. at least. They can weather these storms that much more. Right. They can hold private assets and suffer through it because they've got other assets or other time to do it. The more these strategies and things come downstream and people under that $5 million liquid QP threshold have access to stuff like this, the more those investors need to understand if I take this on, I got to know those liquidity risks that come with it because market to market, all this stuff is, it's, it's a, it's a whole different beast. It's a whole different right. knowledge gap right. that you have to get around yep. your head. Yep. And if we're investing client money for the next 20 to 40 years, there's no need for the entire portfolio to be 100% daily liquid. If there are better opportunities that should offer higher expected returns than the public markets, lower volatility than the public markets are both. But we still have to educate clients in ways like this and just individual conversations that you and I have met all the time. This is what we're dealing with. We think it should add value over the long term. You just have to treat it a little bit differently. That's an interesting question, Matt, to ask you about planning, because that, that was one of the points Larry Swedro made, which is he has obviously a huge amount, like 50, 60% of his portfolio in this. I don't think he expects your average person is going to do that. But he did say he thinks like your average person has way too little money in this. Because when, when most people look at their financial plans, they, have, they don't need as much liquidity as they think they need. And they have the ability to put a bunch of money away for stuff like this. Like, how do you think about sizing something like this when you look at someone's portfolio? We talked a lot about this in some of the earlier episodes. So on the financial planning side, the CCBS framework of you have to have the calendar, which is the ordering of dates, things we know are going to happen. We have to have the cash flows. So now what is the money coming in and out? What, is, what do the surpluses and deficits look like against all the stuff we know on the calendar? And then the balance sheet itself, what do we own? What do we owe? In the balance sheet, we take a bucketing approach, which is basically our short-term money, our medium-term money, and our long-term money. Once we understand how we to bucket that out, only then, if we have sufficient short and usually medium-term money, do we start to think about how much liquidity do we actually need versus can we entertain an interval fund first? And if we can entertain an interval fund, should we look at an evergreen structure for something and if we can entertain that, and usually this marches up with bigger balance sheets, can we look at like a drawdown fund or something entirely private in nature to think about on the balance sheet? You could only do that if you've gone through that whole exercise of understanding the cash flow needs against your balance sheet, how that balance sheet is built, 
asset allocation and asset location so that you understand what you might need to draw from when and why, and then run it through some kind of dire scenarios. Like you got to beat the crap out of stuff and go, if I'm okay not to care, and Lee, comment on this for a second. If I'm okay not to care, what does it mean to come out of the other side of 2008 and 9 owning some of this stuff or come out on the other side of COVID owning some of this type of stuff? Yep. If you invested in private, um, granted it was only institutional at that time. If you invested in private equity in 2009, you did awesome. <laughs> you were greedy when others were fearful, to quote, to quote Mr. Buffett again. That is one of the, you know, we talked about behavioral finance a lot at some point, is one of the hidden benefits to evergreen assets. You are, you are restricted from full liquidity when it might be a bad idea to sell in the first place. Now, is that always going to be true? Of course not. But focusing on the long term is an inherent feature of evergreen private assets. If public markets are brutal in a downturn, private markets can be utterly savage. And I think this is a really important point. If your balance sheet can afford the utter, utter savagery <laughs> that right. is a drawdown, especially in public markets, but now spill it over into privates, it creates its own set of independent opportunities. And that's where, Jack, back to your point of like, how do you understand your liquidity and your balance sheet to do this? It's just a whole other opportunity set that it opens up the door to. Going back to the structure part of this, if, if I sort of contrast like the other evergreen structures with interval funds, would, yeah. would the main difference be like, first of all, interval funds have a ticker, but then also these other evergreen structures can set their own policies in terms of they're not subject to that 5% per quarter rule, right? They can set their own policies in terms of how they want to handle that. Yeah. So there's two, ma uh, two main differences. One is administrative. So like you said, there is no ticker for a, either a private REIT, so that would be for the real estate funds, or a private BDC, which is another way to invest in private credit, or a tender offer fund, which is what you might see in private equity. There are three names for essentially the same thing. There's some level of paperwork. It's pretty short. It's not something terribly complicated. We can always help with that, but you probably don't need a lot of help anyway. The The big institutional funds will have 60 to 100 page private placement memorandums and limited partnership agreements. You're talking here usually less than 10 and half, half of it is disclaimers at the end. So it's really like five and they can accept money at whatever pace they so choose every month, every quarter, it's usually every month. And the second part is, is more important and that's liquidity. So these funds must have some sort of policy that they plan to follow. So we'll take Blackstone REIT, for example, because I already referenced that one. Their policy is 2% of the fund's value every month for withdrawals and 5% per quarter. So if they went one and a half, one and a half, they'd have two left for the third month. But if they went two and two, then they only have one left for the third month. Whatever their, every, each fund's a little bit different. You could have 5%. A lot of times it's a little bit lower than that, but it's not guaranteed. 
like the interval fund structure is. That's the biggest difference. It's there's some level of board of directors discretion to say in a dire market, we don't think it's in the best interest of investors to sell this office building at 50 cents on the dollar. We don't want to do it. We're not going to offer liquidity. Again, they will be least liquid when you most want it. That those are the two big differences. I'm wondering, like you you referenced BRE, um, yep. that that in a lot of ways that was in the news a lot because people I think it a was. lot of people were requesting money back, but in a lot of ways that was sort of a, a positive experience with these fund structures, right? Because it did it did work as intended. Um, there was there was no like collapse or something like that. Like it did work as intended through that period where a lot of people were asking for their money back. Right. Each fund's policy, and and they they got to stress stress test these things too. Just like we stress test client portfolios. If a dire market situation happens and we get tons of redemption requests, how are we going to handle it? And with real estate, you do have some level of income coming in all the time from people paying rent, whether it's a, a person owning you know, in an apartment or uh, office tenants or casinos or whatever it is. So that helps them in any scenario because you're always going to have income how, but how do you handle it i think they followed their policy that investors should have known and most of them did know ahead of time and they followed it perfectly and it does see it does seem a positive stress test for that structure in evergreen private real estate now it is a pain because you, if you want all your money back, you have to keep. You usually have to keep asking for it, over and over and over and over again. That can be a pain. With private equity, you generally see quarterly instead of monthly slash quarterly, so it's a little bit more orderly in terms of how they would have to offer liquidity. Because again, they don't want to have to hold twenty five percent of their fund to catch. I've seen I've seen thirty percent in cash. I'm like, why would you ever invest in this? Uh, that was a little bit of a historical example. I don't see 30% today, but it could happen. So it's I when I'm diligencing these funds, uh, that's something I'm you know really paying attention to. What what is your plan? What is your policy? What is your plan? And what are you going to do about it in a left tail situation? And it's interesting too, because like as an investor, certainly I want my money back if if I want to, you know, if I request my money. But the other side is I kind of like that idea of, you know, not the interval funds, but the other structure where you have this board approval, because I, I don't know that I necessarily want them fire sailing everything to like meet redemption. So I kind of like the idea that that check exists, right. that, you know, they're not just going to fire sail the whole portfolio, you know, at, at crazy prices to give people their money back. Right. Right. Which is why... My my personal bias is I think that stru the REIT structure, whatever you want to call it, works fine in real estate, but credit works fine in interval funds. And so in credit, most of the senior secured private credit funds have 10 to 12% yields right now. So they're getting two and a half to three percent of their funds value every quarter in income. It's not that big of a lift. To make the other two percent, you might have to. Hey, loans mature all the time in a normal rate environment that get prepaid all the time. 
you have more liquidity. Whereas in, in real estate, I kind of like having that protection of against a forced fire sale. It's interesting because these structures also, I think it's really important always when we're thinking about investment structures to almost think about them like they're just businesses. And when I hear you explaining it this way, I think about how as like a real estate entity or as a private credit entity, the structure of like helping shareholders uh, or people or investors not be their own worst enemy is the thing that makes the both the fund, the track, track record and the structure work. Is that a fair thing to say? It's, it's a very fair thing to say. And again, some, some of the strategies and structures haven't been you know fully tested yet in a in a down market and i'm perfectly cognizant of that but there's a there's generally at least a plan that i can i can review i can talk through hey this happens again COVID happens again we don't want it but what what would you do walk me through it and they better do that and if not we're never investing a dollar so the facebook marketplace uh i will just go to facebook marketplace and sell all the bank loans that's not viable. That that's not what we're uh, that's not what we're doing here. If you uh, if you're looking to buy another lunchbox, you can go to. <laughs> uh, I, I don't see your Sunpoint lunchbox there, but it's uh, hiding off to the side. If you're if you want to start a lunchbox collection, that's a perfectly fine place to go. But for for and what helps all of the structures is their their growth in the last five years. You have a lot more supply of buyers and sellers especially in private credit that even if you have to take a, a small haircut if you have to if you have to get liquidity to meet demands for investors you can do it and with real estate uh with the private REIT structure or tender offer fund call it whatever you want they work pretty much the same way those protections are built in to help that process not have to be overnight. There's usually notice period as well. That's usually not too onerous. Hey, our funds liquidity is monthly and you got to give us a few days notice or our fund is quarterly and you got to give us a few more days notice. But again, those are all specified up front, and, and we're more than willing to help clients through that if they're interested. What do the uh, fees look like in these areas? You know, traditionally things like private equity, all these private things have reputations for having yeah. pretty high fees. Like when you get into the interval funds and the evergreen structures, like what do the fees typically look like? Yep. So there's two points, Jack. One, private, whatever, whatever we're dealing with, their fees will be higher than a public counterpart. Period. So if you have an active fixed income fund at, say 50 to 75 basis points, private credit's always going to be higher than that. Private equity is always going to be higher than the most expensive uh, equity, active equity fund. Any private rate is going to be more expensive than any public rate mutual fund, period. They are coming down. And even in the what what's kind of surprised me, especially in the last year, call it, is the evergreen private funds sometimes have lower fees now than the institutional 
funds that might be doing the same thing or they might be investing alongside each other. The industry, you know, benchmark for years was 2% per year in management fee plus 20% of profits over some hurdle rate. The investors have to earn a 5 or 7% yield and then the funds manager starts getting paid beyond that. With some of these structures I've seen some at one and a quarter percents, which is a lot lower than two. Uh, I've seen some at one and a half. And I, I know one private REIT that charges 75 basis points, which is about the same as some other um, actively managed public REIT funds. Now they're trying to make it up with a higher, so perform, you know, carried interest or performance hurdle, call it whatever you want to do the same thing. So if we as investors do well, the manager will earn a portion of that. But if they don't do well, then they don't. That's where they're trying to make their money is, hey, we're, we're a private real estate fund. We think our fund will earn 9 to 11% per year on average. So we're going to charge a carried interest over five. Okay, so you're gonna they they better hit what they're supposed to, and then they'll they'll take more of it. There there's not there's really very few evergreen private funds charging two percent management fee, and the ones that are are generally in venture capital or growth equity, where fees are higher by definition because their private fund fees are also higher, and it takes a lot of work to run these things. And a lot of them are going to get zeroed. Like, oh, that's tons just, of them are going to get zeroed. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're buying office buildings. You're hoping for very, very few zeros. If you're doing venture capital, yeah. you're yeah. yeah, you're expecting. If, if, if you're a venture capital fund and you invest in twenty deals, fifteen of them might return zero. Hopefully, the other five, ret- and that'd be a great outcome. Five out of twenty. The other five hopefully return five to fifteen times your money, or more if, if you're investing in real estate you're you're not you're not counting on zeros that's not part of how this works you mentioned ventures is venture done any of this yet like have you seen these evergreen structures in venture uh very very few okay uh it just doesn't it does doesn't fit uh because the cash flows are so lumpy you you might invest in a great company that returns 10x your money over five years but you get it all at the end there's there's some that are trying to merge venture with more traditional private equity and some sort of blend so you get some liquidity to to try and meet investors liquidity on a quarterly basis all all tender offer funds and generally they don't they're going to offer the lowest level of quarterly liquidity some it, it's it's the hardest but there, there are at least a couple that are, that are trying to do it. How about a capacity? Like, will you see these things close? Like, if too, too many assets come in and they don't think they can deploy them profitably, will you see these funds like close? It's, it's a great question. Because, it depends. You have to read the funds, you know, funds documents and what they're what they're going to do with them. It is up to the structure and the manager. So there are some that 
I would expect someday to close. Uh, like a mutual fund can can close to new investors. Um, the same with an you know an interval fund can can close to new investors. One of the negatives with BREIT is they were just taking cash in droves in 2021, 2022, and had to put it somewhere. Um, they couldn't turn off the spigot, to my understanding. I haven't dug too deep into it, but that that's what I've heard. So I don't think many of these funds are old enough yet to have run into that problem. Um, but ask me a year or two from now and might be a great question. So my, uh, my devil's advocate question I always like to ask about this is, you know, oh, yeah. when, when you think about private investments, you know, there's always the idea that, you know, the top endowments, the top institutions get the best private managers. And then you kind of work down to the next tier of institutions, they get the next best managers. And, you know, one can make an argument that by the time it comes down to advisors and your average investor, like I'm, I'm not getting great managers. I mean, do you think there's anything to that? Yes. Um, it, so what, what's the newer trend, Jack, uh, in, in a, a few different cases, I'll, I'll give you like, um, like there's a private equity fund I know of that has a few different managers that they're working with to get deals and they're co-investing the evergreen funds co-invest alongside the institutional funds that the big guys get. So it's the same deal flow in a different structure. There's another one I just saw not too long ago uh, that they've identified four of their private funds, the same funds that your endowments and institutions get. And they, that, their new evergreen fund will get a piece to the extent that they can handle it of all the deals in those funds. So that's how they're, they're mitigating it through of investing alongside the funds. The evergreen fund has the added requirements of liquidity and has to hold cash and other liquid assets to handle that. The private funds obviously don't. So it, it kind of, it's a little bit of an operational hurdle for the manager, but if they want to make evergreen private equity work or private assets work, and to answer your very valid question, that's how they're doing it, is investing alongside big guys in a different structure. And with, with interval funds, are, are they mostly operating like through financial advisors? rather than your average person being able to go in and buy the interval fund? Is that the way it typically works? Most of the time, yes. Uh, well, a, an average retail investor who with, with no advisor probably isn't going to know they exist in the first place. Even if they stumble across them, they might see a minimum investment on their, on their uh, custodian that's far too high for them and get scared off anyway. We can, and plenty of, of other RIAs can get in at the firm level. So we have one interval fund we work with that has a stated minimum of $10 million. All right, how many retail investors can meet that? Zero. Speak for but, yourself, Lee. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but since we've long since met that minimum, we can get any new client in at whatever they want to put in. Speak for me, Lee. Speak for me. 
one dollar <laughs> yeah to buy the car bob so that that's um and, and i i've seen some other interval funds that have minimums posted on custodial sites they're not terribly enforcing them very strictly uh, some are some aren't but it's there there's only a there's only a handful of interval funds that have that have really high minimums but again uh most retail investors have never heard of these things and aren't aren't going to aren't going to know what to do with them they'll probably just find something else and yeah, and I would think that's a feature, not a bug um, to some degree, because you're, your average so. person just buying this and has to understand all these rules about when they get their money back. And, you know, you're right. probably better off working through somebody who knows how these things work rather than doing Absolutely. that and then trying to sell it and being like, oh, right. I can't sell it. I can't get my money yeah. back. Like I want it now. Like, I think probably for now, these, these are probably better done through advisors. Right. And one, one thing I didn't mention about interval funds is that they are required to tell you when their date is and that you have an offer to sell you know it's a one or two page letter and very professional looking lawyer written stuff so if, if you're not a savvy investor or don't have an advisor and you happen to stumble across one of these things you get this letter and you be like well do i have to sell no you don't but you can on this day and different custodians work a little bit differently. Some make you put in your order on that day. Some will take it like a week early. But if you get this letter in the mail and you're like, it says corporate action. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. And you have, you would have no one to, no one to talk to. I'm just curious as we, as we wrap up here, what do you see as the future of these? I mean, if we look five to 10 years out, I mean, will these be a much like a bigger part? Will more people be using these? Will be a, these be a bigger part of people's portfolios? Like, what do you see as the future for these going forward? If people like Matt and I do our job well, I I think there's no doubt that Evergreen private assets will be a much larger part of an average client portfolio. They're also getting used by institutions, which is the interesting part. So let's say you're a huge hospital foundation and you have a billion dollars and you have a target that you want to hit to private equity, right? But that's an impossible target to hit because you're always having capital calls. You're always having distributions. Your funds are making money, hopefully not losing money. It's a hard target to hit. So what some of them are now doing is using a part of this, part of their, their slug, their private equity allocation in this case, and putting it in an evergreen fund. So if they're too far below target, they can top up any month they want or any quarter. And if they're over target, they have a place where they know they can at least get some liquidity. So that's even giving more credence to this evergreen structure and then letting clients of ours follow along, which has been really interesting. And it makes a lot of sense for them. I worked with plenty of them. It makes a lot of sense. So I think a lot of this in terms of this is my pop culture reference for, for the day. I think a lot of this in terms of the the Howard Stern book and movie private parts and with private markets, there's so many things that are more interesting than the public stuff. And in that true Howard Stern sense, like the stuff you, you technically can say on the radio and the stuff somebody might be willing to say on the radio back in those days of like pushing the envelope and the shock jock thing. And this is the reality of it though. 
as it gets more popular, more of the private stuff comes into the public eye and there's a sweet spot where it's fun and exciting and interesting. But then there's an also a part down the road where it, you know, it ends up being serious and it ends up meaning serious, serious XM and whatever, like it ends up there <laughs> and it's not quite the same as it was when it was emergent and shocking and interesting. We're probably the democratization, the productization, whatever you want to call it, this stuff becoming accessible is kind of in that sweet spot. This is Howard Stern at WCCC in Hartford, like pushing that envelope out in the early days. We're here right now. As investors, as allocators, we're looking for those opportunities and where some interesting stuff can happen, but it's not going to be this way forever. And you got to understand the different access points because it's really easy to screw this up. Jack, to your point, it's easy to screw up the financial planning around this stuff. Lee, to all your points, it's easy to pick the wrong vehicle or not understand the corporate action that says you can only have so much money out. Or I think about this with knowing some people with the B-Read experience where it's like on those gap years where uh, public markets are in the toilet, but Jack, to your point, like the B-Read is uh, my drink. Look at my, I didn't mark any of my assets down yet. This is the kind of stuff that happens. It creates opportunities. It's easy to get burned. But if you understand it, this coming downstream represents a bunch of huge opportunities for people who didn't have access before. Matt, I'm happy you got the pop culture references because as you know, we cannot end the podcast uh, any week without some sort of pop culture reference. I feel morally obligated and I'm really excited because I actually didn't think of the, the Howard Stern private parts reference until like halfway through. And I was like, oh, this totally makes sense. This is Robin getting fired. This is Allison's miscarriage. Need to go back and rewatch this now. You also <laughs> saved Lee because I could have peppered him with questions for about four hours on this. So waiting for you to come in with a pop culture reference. So uh, he should be happy as well that you did that. Lee, I'll be peppering you with both later today. Don't worry. All right. I'll be ready. <laughs> well, thank you, Lee, for joining us. Uh, Matt and I certainly oh. could not have done this uh, on our own, and it would not have been very informative. So we, we really appreciate you doing it. I always love to talk about this stuff. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. And we'll see you next week. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.